I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dr. Philip Powell, a research fellow at the University of Sheffield in London, focusing on human emotion and its effects on our decision-making, psychological functioning, and well-being. He is a contributor to and co-editor with Nathan Considine of the Handbook of Discussed Research to be published next month. Welcome, Phil, to Delving In. Uh, hi, Stuart. Great to be here. So let's start by uh, telling us about your background and what makes the topic of disgust so appealing to you. And that's, I know that that sounds funny. I'm not intending to be funny necessarily, although maybe a little bit. There, there is a kind of humorous element to the dis- disgust being an attractive subject. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, is, it is kind of funny. I mean, not everyone is interested in disgust research or indeed in disgusting topics. Um, so my background, I majored in psychology. Uh, so I really got an interest into disgust throughout that studies, throughout my undergraduate studies. So as an undergraduate at the University of Sussex, when choosing a dissertation topic, there was a professor there called Graham Davy, who's been very active in discussed research for a long time and still is. And he was offering up topics for dissertation on disgust in mental health. And that attracted loads of signups, which is, as you say, somewhat paradoxical, given that disgust is something that we're most to be grossed out about, but also seems to be attractive to people in some way, and they're interested in it. Uh, and from that, essentially, I got picked to do that dissertation and went on to do a PhD in later life in self-directed disgust within depression. And disgust, as I understand it, is one of six basic universal emotions. Is that, is that correct? So you have you know, happiness, surprise, anger, fear, disgust. Yeah, yeah, yes. So that's certainly certainly one of the emotion theories. Um, there are various other theories that don't identify discrete emotions, and instead that suggest that there are uncountable amounts of um, emotions that are all coloured by our own uh, appraisals. Um, but certainly, basic emotions theory uh, suggests that there's this set number of discrete emotions, and disgust is one, as you say, that's universally uh, recognised and expressed in a similar fashion. And I guess you could say it's the opposite of attraction or something that's appealing. It's kind of one of the aversive emotions. And I guess we think of negative emotions, which is probably not all that valid to talk about positive and negative emotions, but to the extent that they makes, it makes sense to use the label that negative emotions have to do with aversion or th- things that you don't like or don't want and want to change. So fear, anger, and disgust, uh, whereas uh, happiness, surprise, if it's a good surprise, would be more positive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult to think of an exact emotional opposite. So we think of, for example, the the opposite of sadness being happiness. For disgust, it's a little bit more difficult. And I think, as you suggest, attraction is, is almost the closest that I can think of, um, largely in the sense that it makes you want to do the opposite. So it makes you want to approach the, the stimulus or whatever you find attractive. You, you you know, you want to be near it, whereas disgust is is essentially there to stop you going near things and to avoid things. And I, I understand that the capacity for disgust is is probably innate, but that the specifics are learned, which is pretty interesting. I, I don't know if we think of that for other emotions. Like we don't necessarily say that sadness is learned. Anger, maybe, maybe parts of it, but disgust, it seems to stand out among the uh, basic emotions as being the content of which is primarily learned and it's what you should be disgusted by, except for foods, of course. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, foods also this 
things can start out disgusting, but then can become an acquired taste, like like beer, for instance. Like almost every kid who tastes beer says, this is disgusting, or makes the face for that. And then they somehow, uh, most people go on to learn to like it because the culture says this is good. Yeah, yeah. And I love beer, so uh, I definitely don't think that's disgusting anymore. But they, yeah, it's, it's a massively flexible emotion so we do it is socially socio-culturally defined so it's, we can think of it as being specific to time and place um, certain activities for example that would have been done uh, a long long time ago for example in the in the roman Colosseum that we'd now see is barbaric and potentially would elicit disgust uh, may not have elicited the same visceral nature of disgust when they were enacted in in, in in Roman times, uh, and equally, as you say, with food. So, if you look across cultures, the things that the food habits that we find uh, disgusting in the West are not necessarily disgusting in the East. And a case in point is around eating insects, which is one proposed solution to potential food shortages because they're such a good source of protein. Of course, getting people to do that in the West is often met with an emotional barrier, with the barrier of essentially, "Ooh, that's gross. I don't want to eat that." So. We do have this massive flexibility, and so the propensity for disgust, as you say, is innate. But what, what an infant, what a child, what a human goes on to find disgusting will vary over time and where they're raised. Yeah, I've read that uh, there's a society for the eating of insects. I, I, I think it's in the U.S., but it may be international. And that uh, usually the most popular dishes are the ones where the fact that it's made of insects is not hidden, where the legs are sticking out from the top of the dish, for instance almost as if people are reveling and say, yeah, other people think this is disgusting, but it's delicious. <laughs> well, there is a kind of like a, a, a status uh, element to that, probably saying, look at me, I don't mind, I can eat these bugs. Um, but yeah, you'll see it. I mean, on mass, you'll see the opposite of that. So if you look at products that potentially are looking to be shelved on the supermarket there'll be things like protein bars made from uh, essentially ground up insects. So you wouldn't even know without being told that, that, that those bars, for example, contain insect protein or insect flowers. So I think the the whole idea around eating insects with the legs sticking out and, you know, th things that are looking like creepy crawlies is more around essentially sending a message to people uh, and making it obvious that, that of what they're doing there um, and the appeal of just the, the shock value of it and getting people's attention. And then these things can change over time. I mean, um, lobster used to be considered uh, really repulsive. It was like a giant insect, and who would eat that? And it was served, I think, to prisoners. <laughs> so, and now it's you know among the most uh, favorite delicacies. I think we'll we'll continue to see that into the future. I mean, it'll be it'll be a situation we can imagine in a few hundred years where people are looking at some of our practices and thinking they're absolutely disgusting just as we do to, to to our ancestors today so i mean that's a that's kind of reassuring when we think of disgust as being something that's potentially maladaptive socially for example to issues like climate change and food um, security and uh, you know eating things eating novel things as a way of, of potentially moving towards that goal there will be change over time and and younger people by that notion, you could hypothesize that younger people will be more adaptive and more open to change. And indeed, I think that's what we see across the board, not just in discussed research, but in behavior in general. I suppose uh, younger people are more adventurous and are not so set in their preferences. And I think that applies to even things like music, a choice of music that people, as they get older, they know what they like and they like what they know and just keep listening to the same same genres of music, unless they already had a very wide 
variety. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, some of the uh, dishes that I came across were just really disgusting sounding, uh, I have to say. <laughs> so apparently there's a, um, a type of fermented corn mush uh, called chicha in Ecuador that uh, is made by chewing on the corn and spitting it into a bottle. And then you give it to the next person and they chew in some and spit it into the bottle and it's bottles full you buried in the in the earth, I guess maybe because it's cooler, right? The right temperature for fermentation. And, you know, one person's fermentation is another per person's um, rotting. And, you know, biologically, they're not so different, are they? No, no. And you'll find as we continue to talk about discuss that a lot of it comes down to how it's appraised. So the visceral reaction that we all have is not necessarily so different across people, but the way in which it's appraised, the way in which we make sense of it at a higher order level, and where we think about things, um, does impact how we then go on to behave. As you say, that that's seen as potentially a delicacy in that culture. But when we look at it from an outsider's view, we see it as yeah, it's essentially as decay, as, as rot, something we want to avoid. Um, and there's lots of examples of that through people reappraising things that other people would find disgusting. And if it's if it's disgusting enough. It can evoke a disgust reaction even just by hearing a description, even without seeing it. So, for instance, Sardinian kasu marzu is a kind of cheese with live uh, maggots in it. And some people, I guess, pick, up, pick off the maggots before they eat the cheese, but other people don't even bother. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. I mean, that is uh, an interesting feature of disgust. You should say that it can be can be purely ideational it can be purely just ideas that, that trigger it i mean there's experiments that have been conducted for example looking at moral disgust um uh, looking at how people respond to incest violations and you don't necessarily need to present present an example of people committing incest to, to elicit disgust there you just have to say imagine having sex with your brother or something like that and that will be sufficient for people to actually have a, a visceral disgust response yeah, so you're in a way introducing us to the concept of disgust as a aspect of morality, which is really interesting because we, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that disgust is, one would think disgust is the outcome of some kind of value system, but maybe it's, it's not necessarily in that order. I mean, maybe the disgust comes first and then the reasoning comes after. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that there's not a definitive answer on that. So most of the evidence that's been conducted on disgust and morality has been correlational in nature. So we know that people that, for example, find have a lower threshold for finding certain moral violations as immoral uh, will also be more sensitive to disgust violations but there has been some experimental research where they've induced states of disgust which is one of the fun parts of doing disgust research is you get to get people in a lab or in a room and make them feel disgusted and then see what the effects are um, and there's been some some findings although they're not unequivocal that um, inducing states of disgust in people that actually lead to more severe moral uh, reprehension of, of particular acts, which is an interesting potential sort of causal role for disgust in that the actual emotional state of how you're feeling then impacts the uh, cognitive evaluation of how wrong a moral violation is. Right. So as I understand the research, uh, when you would do something like that, you would 
expose the subject to something that makes them feel disgust. It could be a, a picture or just a description and then present something else that is completely unrelated, maybe some kind of political uh, statement. And that the prior exposure just before of something disgusting actually co colors the reaction, changes the reaction. It reminds me a little bit about experiments where they uh, inject somebody with adrenaline and then present them with different situations. So depending on the situation, they'll say they're afraid versus angry. Yeah, yeah. And I think that those are the most um, attention-grabbing findings, I think, when you've got something that is essentially conceptually or the unrelated on the domain level with the induction stimulus what you're using to make people feel disgusted now you do find stronger effects if the if the, they are similar so if the thing that you're using to make people feel disgusted is related to the moral violation then you'll see a stronger effect um, but there are to a degree carryover effects with things that are completely unrelated which is the sort of headline grabbing news um, the reason i'm a bit hesitant to fully support research like that is because there's been competing findings as well of, of the effects not working as well across time and in different contexts so i think the jury's still out on that but certainly we know that disgust is involved in immoral decision making and it doesn't necessarily have to be an outcome it could potentially uh, help people when they're where they're judging what, what degree something is morally wrong whether they should um, identify it as being wrong Another key thing to say, I think, uh, is that disgust is different to other moral emotions like anger, because it's often associated with something called moral dumbfounding, um, which is the idea that there's not a reason for it. So why are you asking if incest is disgusting? Why is it disgusting? Why is it morally wrong? Uh, because it's disgusting. Why is it disgusting? Because it is, because it's, maybe you'll get because it's unnatural, but a lot of the reasonings become circular, becomes tautological, which is different to something like anger, where normally there's a clear violation that people can articulate. So it's, it's uh, almost literally visceral as a reaction, as opposed to uh, thought through. Yeah, instinctive, primitive, you know, people may use, use these words to describe disgust as an emotion. It's quite a, you know, visceral and, and primitive emotion when you think about it, about the pure sensations and, and where it came from in terms of a food rejection response. And then you have the whole phenomenon of disgust being contagious. So if I see you eating something and, you know, reacting very negatively and very strongly, I'm apt to be, learn to be disgusted by it, even if I never eat it. Just know, I just know that it's disgusting. Yeah, and that's the, that's the key theory around how uh, evolutionary scientists think that disgust has come to be enlisted by such a wide variety of things, you know. So I think that the main theory around why we're disgusted is, is around health, is around avoiding sources of, you know, of infectious disease, pathogen sources, things like that. But there's the theory that it's then expanded to other uh, domains, including the moral domain, via that same social response, via the same idea that other people have used the disgusted response and outcome um, to to make other things within society uh, be essentially be excluded from society and be and, and cause disgust in people. So the, it's an emotion of boundary making, essentially. It creates boundaries between what's acceptable and what's not, whether it's food or whether it's uh, other people, groups of people. Uh, political affiliations, um, you, you name it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way to describe it. I mean, others like Paul Rosin, who's, you know, an absolute 
godfather in terms of the psychology of disgust um it just would describe it as a body and soul emotion so it's it, it started off by protecting our physical body from pathogen sources both orally consumed and through touch and then expanded to also protect our psychological self as well exactly as you said from from what is essentially part of oneself and acceptable and what isn't and should be excluded and it can also protect this the social group in a way knowing who's allowed inside and and who's not allowed who's kept outside you know so it's analogous to the body yeah absolutely so we can all see these things as extensions of the self so the the extended social group the in-group discussed uh is used is, is mobilized in that in that context as well sometimes um, for very negative purposes. So if we look at some of the, the worst sort of atrocities in, in our history, if we look at, for example, the Third Reich and Nazism, you look at the rhetoric of Hitler, um, he used essentially discussed rhetoric to help in de- the humanization of Jews, for example. And that would be a case of, of labeling them clearly as an outgroup and being lesser than than his in-group because, and using discussed language essentially you know, to complete that aim. And I, I read that the same thing happened with the Tutsis in Rwanda, that the, the Tutsis were um, not just demonized, but labeled as subhuman in some way. Uh, usually, usually, I guess it's vermin or insects, uh, things, things that mo- a lot of people regard as, as, uh, as very squeamishly. Yeah, so it was that, it's exactly right. It's that language of, of linking them to, to prototypical disgust stimuli, such as creepy crawlies, vermin, you know, in, all those types of things that well, people are generally disgusted by. Um, so it's been used, yeah, within group processes as well uh, to define, for example, hierarchies and social class. You think within, for example, Victorian England, it was similar in terms of disgust rhetoric for people that are beneath the sort of ruling classes and seen as, as essentially filthy, tantamount to someone that's being disgusting and riddled with disease. Let's turn now to talking about some of the most potent objects of disgust. I think it's probably helpful for our listeners to feel a little bit of it so they know what we really know what, what we're, we're talking about. So what would you say are some of the most reliable elicitors of disgust? And I guess we can go into just enough detail to identify it without necessarily going into the most gruesome details. Yeah, I mean, well, the prototypical disgust stimulus is feces. That's the the key thing that, we, you know, that's something that we learn to be disgusted by quite early on. So there's the absence of a disgust response in, in young kids and in toddlers anyone who's had kids will know that they're not disgusted by by much um, but we obviously socialize them pretty quickly to be disgusted by poo their own poo and other people's poo so that's a that's a key uh discuss elicitor beyond that any, anything that that was that suggests that there may be pathogen presence is something that uh is a reliable discuss elicitor so there'll be things like properties of stimuli such as sliminess mucus normally slightly warm, uh, horrible to touch, foul smells, all of those things, if they're present in a, in any way, uh, will elicit disgust. So festering wounds, for example, would be something that, you know, you can easily visualize something that would, would cause you to feel disgusted. And beyond that, things like interpersonal sexual violations often are reliable triggers of disgust. So particularly ones that have both uh, 
a bodily violation element and a, a clear socio-cultural uh, violation, a, a moral violation. So if we think of, for example, paedophilic acts, uh, acts of incest, all of those things will uh, elicit a, a disgust response in people. Or bestiality. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And any sort of a, a clear violation that involves those because those aren't only moral violations but also potentially physical violations as well so getting back to the first thing you said about feces I, I it sounds like it's possible to overdo the teaching of disgust william miller who wrote i think maybe the first book on uh, disgust called the anatomy of disgust i think back in the uh, 80s i think it was he described how in teaching his not quite three-year-old to do toilet training she had an aversion to wiping herself because she thought it was so disgusting. So it's, it is possible to overdo it as well. And on, on, and the opposite, and then the opposite phenomenon is, you know, doctors learning to suppress their disgust response. I'm going to have a cousin who's a gastroenterologist. I'm sure he doesn't get disgusted anymore by feces, uh, maybe a little, but not certainly not as much as before. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so there are st there are not very many of them uh, for obvious reasons, but there are a few uh, accounts of sort of feral children who have been essentially studied after being raised in the wild without um, human parents and have shown an absence of a disgust response. Uh, and also in particular conditions where social learning is, is more difficult for people. So, for example, on the autistic spectrum, you'll see there in some cases uh, a diminished disgust response uh, which just shows that, that that social learning is important there and as you said for some people it may be possible to overdo we disgust is involved in a number of of mental health conditions uh, often where associated with an elevated disgust response to things um, ocd being a, be a clear example and contamination concerns um, and it's possible that you say, obviously, child rearing and early experiences do play a role in, in why those people have such heightened disgust responses. Is there any research to suggest that some people are born with a higher capacity for disgust or a capacity for a more intense disgust reaction? Yeah. So I'd, uh, again, I don't, I'm not sure there's there's lots on this. The, the, the study and work that comes to mind is that by Josh Tiber in, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, he did some work, I think, back in 2016, looking at twin studies, which are the classic sort of paradigms that people use when they want to look at genetic effects, because they can look at identical and non-identical twins. And by working out what percentage of particular behavior or trait is shared um, between those different groups, they can work out uh, an estimate of how much it's genetically pre-wired or, or genetically shared. Um, and he's he's found out the headline finding was that it was around 50% of the variation in in how sensitive we are to disgust stimuli is genetically determined. Um, so that would suggest that there is uh, differences between people when they're born in disgust sensitivity and this is shared uh, with their siblings. Uh, and it would also suggest that the other half is essentially learnt in the environment and through child rearing and other experiences that we have. So you mentioned there are some disorders with an excess of disgust, in a, in a sense, OCD being the most obvious one. And then there are also disorders where there's an, a deficit in disgust, which is interesting. I don't know so much if it's a deficit in disgust relating to food, but relating to social prohibitions. 
so from what i've read yeah i mean there would be cases where for whatever reason there's a diminished disgust response so the example there i gave was around children on the autistic spectrum who just have a harder time picking up social cues and i used to work with kids on, on the autistic spectrum so i was you know this was something that i saw firsthand we'd, we'd go you know into particular situations where a kid would get feces for for example on his hands etc and rub it on his face and he'd have no problem with doing this and it's largely just because there's an absence or, or diminished disgust response there just because they don't like i said they don't pick it up as easily so the social cues that we would all uh, latch on to when we're when we're young um, needs there needs to be extra tuition for people like that to help them um, deal with their uh, disgusting stimulus and what's appropriate and what's not in particular situations. So that's a situation where it's not necessarily a diminished capacity for, for disgust, but more a, a diminished capacity to generalize what you're supposed to be disgusted by. And that's, of course, socially learned. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you'd expect in those cases to also have a have a capacity for disgust, but it's it's largely around what what should I be disgusted by, uh, and how are you going to teach me this? Um, and it's just suggesting that in particular situations, like with with some kids, not all kids on the autistic spectrum, but with some kids, for example, they may require additional uh, hands-on tutoring around what what is disgusting and what's not. Not just disgust, obviously, other other elements of of development that involve social learning. It just needs to be done in a different way. But it needs to be one of the subtopics. It sounds like, in a in a uh, f fully uh, socialized person. What about uh, sociopathy, or sometimes called psychopathy? I, I've read that uh, there's a deficit not only in the fear response, but also in the disgust response, and that, that and that there's been some studies that uh, suggest that sociopathic people have an easier time watching a horror movie, for instance, for that reason. Yeah, well, I, that's something that I, I'm not aware of research on myself, but it's something that I could easily speculate over. And yeah, in the same way that fear and horror and, and other related emotions are all bound up in horror movies, you can see that there may be less effective reactivity or emotional reactivity in general in those types of people. Uh, and that would include negative emotions like disgust. So I think we could easily hypothesize that the people with... Um, that sort of condition would be uh, less prone to discuss in those scenarios. And then there have been some studies that suggest that there's a difference in political affiliation as uh, correlated with the disgust. I don't know if there have been similar studies in the UK, but here in the US, uh, I guess it's been found that Republicans in general, and I don't know how robust this finding is, but Republicans are more prone to disgust or feel disgust more, more keenly in, in a way than uh, Democrats. And, and then it also has to do with op openness to experience, that the more prone you are to discuss, the, the more you're interested in security versus adventure, let's say. Yeah, yeah. So most of the studies I'm aware of have been conducted in the States, um, looking essentially at conservatism and liberalism. And I think, you know, the States is quite a good context for it, looking at it from an outsider perspective, because you do have this bipolarized system more so than for example in the uk where we although we're approaching that in a political landscape we do have some other parties like the liberal democrats for example that can oppose the conservatives and labor for people's votes and the green party for example so you've clearly got the republican versus democratic divide there so i think that's part of the reason why it works pretty well to study it in that context 
but you're absolutely right. So most of the research there, again, is correlational. So unsurprisingly, conservatives are disgusted, more easily disgusted than liberals, and particularly on certain issues uh, around, for example, abortion, uh, gay marriage, uh, all those types of things, but not necessarily on all of them. So, for example, conservative disgust does not necessarily extend to economic issues. And this goes to the core of what what is essentially, what do we find disgusting? Um, and in moral and political contexts, it's not necessarily every violation that we find disgusting. Um, there are a number of theories that suggest that it's only certain types of violations. So, there was a big uh, theory around divinity and purity. So when we saw that the violation was crossing over a boundary of what we think is of is pure or divine, uh, another theory from Roger Gina Sorella and others is around bodily violations. So the, he suggested that for that for disgust to be the predominant emotion in a moral violation uh, in response to a moral violation, it needs to be involve a bodily context in some way. And clearly, abortion and gay marriage involve people's thoughts of some sort of bodily moral violation. So I think that's part of the reason why we may see greater disgust from conservatives in that area. Yeah, so th all those things would be learned, presumably. But I, I remember reading some research that suggested that even um, the disgust response to foods, you know, that let's say are universally considered, not universally, but culturally considered disgusting, that the the degree of disgust response would be stronger in a conservative than than a liberal, which I know this is all correlational, but that that has a little implication that well maybe there's something a difference in the capacity, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because uh, I mean it seems to me that the social element has got to be dominant, not not the uh, not the biological. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a chicken and egg situation again that we unfortunately haven't. Uh absolutely bottomed down on yet and often in these situations it's not an either or it's not an either or so often you'll have some uh, effects going in one direction some effects going in the other so you could hypothesize for example that people that are more easily disgusted by particular situations are then more likely to oppose them uh, and then in doing so their political views align more with conservatism uh, and then their opposition to that then reinforces their disgust towards those issues. Equally, you, you could you could hypothesize a different number of effects whereby people are learned to be more conservative through their upbringing or other other factors, and then they go on to justify those things with disgust, or they go on to genuinely feel disgust to those particular issues over time. Um, so I don't think that we fully cleared that up in terms of which direction is more dominant. I mean, is it possible that uh, some groups of people, whether it's conservatives or maybe other groups, make greater use of disgust and the emotion of disgust and the communication and teaching of disgust in their method of persuading people to join their side? You know, the people use different tactics. And so there was a famous example uh, here in the States that uh, there was a candidate named Palladino who was running for governor of New York State. And he sent attack ads, this is during the primary, the Republican primary, he sent attack ads that were laced with the smell of rotting garbage. It was actually, they somehow permeated the paper inside of the envelope with that smell. I mean, no, no one knows whether that was the definitive reason why he won the primary, but he did. <laughs> he didn't win the election, that was Cuomo. Yeah, well, it links back to what we were discussing earlier around the in-group, out-group 
functions have discussed and the idea that it's been used by people in power to cement those boundaries. And I think the, the example you've given there is a perfect one for how that may be used within the political context in the in the US. So, and, and that relates again to what you were talking about with uh, the concept of purity. The almost synonym of impure is, you know, defiled, disgusting, rotten, you know, just all these words that have multiple meanings, both visceral and, uh, and moral. It's a lot of crossover, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's often a, a justification, although to the extent that disgust is unreasoned, you'll often see the language there used to help describe why people feel disgusted by particular, for example, moral violations. And unnaturalness is, is a key thing that you find. It's just unnatural. It doesn't it doesn't follow the social order it's not as it's, it's defilement essentially of, of what's right and what's pure and that's what we see and and, and and this goes across a whole range of behaviors so not just for example sexuality but also around for example food consumption as we've suggested in terms of what people like to do but you know what people like to wear what people like to dress uh, body modifications all those types of things it's interesting that something can be rejected by being called unnatural or by being called animalistic. <laughs> the total opposite things meaning the same thing. You know, you're acting like a dog or or something like that, you know. Yeah, so if you look back at the sort of the, into discussed research, you'll see that there used to be a, a dominant theory uh, by Paul Rosen and other colleagues that had as one of its subcomponents of the types of things that make us feel disgust, uh, a set of stimuli, a set of objects that reminded us of our animal nature so it'd be things that reminded us that we were mortal beings and that we were we weren't sort of pure we had sort of animal functions and you know we we poo we we eat we you know excrete things we get wounds we bleed etc and then josh tiber and others have come to challenge that because as well as you know certain animal features being viewed as disgusting there are certain animals that we don't view as disgusting certain animal traits that we'd actually see as a positive thing so you know it's agile as a agile as a cat for example would be a positive comparator um and that these are two sort of opposing theories about how we try to understand why there's certain classes of things that we find disgusting um and the debate on that is still ongoing but it can it shows how like you said there's a somewhat a, a distinction sometimes or, or a contradiction between what's viewed as natural what's viewed as disgusting and, and animalistic right and there seems to be a need to distance ourselves from animals in some way you know so we when we eat we don't just stick our our faces into the food you know we use utensils or even if we don't have utensils uh, let's say you're in rural india and you use uh, your fingers you can only use uh, below the last knuckle i mean it's a very precise way culturally to eat properly not like an animal yeah and it goes that, that's where you know discusses it it's best where it's used to enforce social rules um, particularly when they're physically based so for example the, the example they're around eating is, is about physical action it's touching a potential contaminant and uh, touching something that can make you dirty can make you sick if it's if it's got pathogen in it uh, and the rules are, are always used there to, to partly yeah to ele elevate ourselves so you're essentially avoiding sources of of pathogens but you're also elevating yourself from what is then being classified as a sort of lower a lower animal if you like if you see see us as non-human animals we're essentially distinguishing ourselves from other animals 
it seems to me that sexuality is a, is a big one, a big topic we're discussed as relevant. And what's really interesting about sexuality, and there's a lot of things interesting, but what's interesting in this uh, regard is that it's much more private than any of the other realms in which disgust plays, uh, plays a role. And so you have a limited way of learning what to be disgusted by. It's much more indirect. And it's also a, an act that maybe feels more animal-like than a lot of other things. Not that it really is, but it may seem that way. I mean, um, literally stripping down someone's animal self and you know, the, the outer clothing comes off. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's an interesting thing there, but by describing it being more private. So one of the key distinctions from another moral emotion like anger is around the harm that's perceived from a particular activity. And in what people will feel dis disgust for things where there's no harm to others, whereas anger tends to be much more invoked when there's a clear moral violation that also causes harm to others. So people will still feel disgusted by someone that's doing a something that's an ostensible sexual violation with their own within their own private residence even if it's with with consenting uh adults so that's a clear distinction there that you said that the disgust response transcends that um private private boundary that people may have uh, people still find it disgusting if if there's a violation being done in those situations uh, and sexuality is a huge thing. So the thing is that we have to, if you think about the evolutionary pressures on, on us, so we have to try and avoid pathogens, but we also need to procreate. So what uh, Charmaine Borg and Peter de Jong and other researchers in the Netherlands have looked at is, the, is that interaction between uh, sexual arousal and disgust. And they seem to be anti-theatical anti to an extent. So as disgust increases, you'll see a decrease in sexual arousal and vice versa. So the more sexually aroused people get, the more willing that they're to do particular activities that from the outside or in a non-sexually aroused state, you may think, oh, that's a bit that's a bit disgusting. Or some people may find them to have an element of disgust. So it's interesting to see the evolutionary play out there between having to temporarily deregulate the disgust response in order to essentially pass on your bodily fluids to, to procreate uh, and also to do that in a way that's otherwise keeps us safe and, and doesn't get us sick. Well, and we're literally talking about touch, you know, so if with attraction brings touch and with disgust brings aversion and non-touch, I mean, distance. And so somehow there's a switch is flipped that oh, this person is attractive. I want to be close. I want to touch. And this person's not. I want to stay far away, both physically and, and psychologically. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an interesting evolutionary play out of, of how to... The, the, the other interesting comparison is around just, just states of not arousal per se, but for example, that are born out of necessity. So we need to reproduce. So we have sexual arousals to get us over what is otherwise appraised as a disgusting act. Equally, if we're, we need to eat, we need to survive. So in, in situations of necessity, when you're really, really hungry, you're more likely to be okay with eating, for example, moldy food, if that's your only source of food. So you'll see then, uh, you know, out of necessity, a deregulation and disgust, and people can then get over it. Or, or the worst case example would, would be cannibalism. There was a famous story of a plane plane wreck where people had to overcome their aversion to cannibalism in order, in order to survive. They were found weeks later and they were still alive because of that. And it's, you know, most people are very squeamish, I think, even just reading about it. 
uh, you can imagine what it would be like to actually be there. Uh, and it, it links to essentially that that thing around cognitive reappraisal. It's what you're doing and how you, although you feel disgusted at the act, how you essentially make meaning out of it cognitively. So in your head, your thoughts. If it's the example that I'm thinking of, it, it, the Andes plane crash disaster, I remember reading about that and the people, the survivors from that described reappraising the situation, the cannibalism of essentially being a, a, a survivor ritual where the people that they were eating were essentially making an ultimate sacrifice so that they could survive. And that's very different to, you know, our understanding of, of cannibalism, where you may think around people dancing around, you know, a pot of uh, cooking someone that's tied up, which would be you know, seen as very sort of evil and uh, socio-morally reprehensible. So it's a way of essentially overcoming disgust. And it's, it's something that is done in various different um, areas of disgust, including in, in sort of like, you know, mental health and clinical psychology. And presumably there aren't other animals that um, have learned to overcome disgust. They either have a habit or they don't. But in our case, we can actually think our way through it and learn to overcome uh, the, uh, the that initial reaction. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, and this would be, I think, a nice topic to maybe close on, uh, would be disgust and humor. That humor makes disgust enjoyable, which is really a paradox. And uh, just to give a couple of examples from my own childhood, when I was eight years old, uh, we came across a tape called a blow-by-blow -blow description of a crepitation contest. And crepitation is a fancy word for passing gas. And it, it, was, it was done as a radio sports broadcast, totally tongue-in-cheek, very seriously done. And it was absolutely hilarious. Uh, another example... Um, is I had a, uh, a record from Mad Magazine called Alfred E. Newman Vocalizes, and it was singing into, well, actually it wasn't singing, it was his only vocalization were burps. And, you know, I was, eight year, I was you know, in, I guess in junior high school, I thought it was hilarious. I, I don't know if I'd still find it hilarious, but it does seem to be a certain age for uh, experimenting with disgust and reveling in the sharing of and eliciting of disgust in one's friends. Yeah, absolutely. It does seem to be. I mean, discussing humor is a great, a great uh, thing to to discuss because it's an issue where, again, we don't know the answers, but we have an idea. So, the first thing to say is if if you find something funny that's disgusting, uh, it's normally it's safe for you. That's the key, that's a key thing. You're not you're not the target of the disgusting experience. So you're not being, for example, farted on. Yeah, so if you're being if you're being farted on, for example, in those scenarios, you probably wouldn't find them as funny as if you're you're listening to that or you're seeing someone else being the the uh, recipient of that. So that's the key thing. Um, and then the key thing I think is around to do with all humor. It's about the unexpected. It's about something happening that you're not expecting or that's, that's a mismatch for what you would expect in that in that scenario. And I think well, you see it with babies. They laugh at people doing things that are slightly odd that's something they don't expect so it could be a funny face for example or it could be you know someone falling over or or just moving oddly um and that's a key thing i think for disgust as well you don't expect to to find that stimuli in, in that situation and it makes you laugh it seems to me that there are some instances of sadistic sharing of disgusting things like you you know little kids elementary school age kids might uh, try to smear a booger their own booger on someone else 
you know, because their own booger is their own booger. So it's not uh, disgusting for them as much as it is for other people. And they realize they have power, <laughs> you know, power if, they, if the booger is on the, on the end of the tip of their finger. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's trying to figure out what goes on in the minds of kids. I think I'm not a developmental psychologist, so I, I don't know for sure, but um, I think you're right in terms of the, they, 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 they know they want to get rid of it. I think they want to, they want to essentially get a reaction with those types of behaviors and to see how their peer reacts to them. For example, smearing that on their face or doing something disgusting, you know, or get, I'll get, uh, times when my kids are like oh it's funny they're playing around with me they're sitting on top of me and they might fart for example and they'll find it hysterical and again it's it's them witnessing they're, they're witnessing me being the butt of that practical joke they're seeing me yeah 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 and then you see it to some extent uh i guess it would be considered lowbrow humor but you see it in uh, adult entertainment too i mean the blazing saddles uh, uh filmed by mel brooks has a, a very notable uh farting scene in it before we, this interview, I showed you a, a, an article that I, I've known about for a long time called Stinks and Instincts, and it's from the Journal of Irreproducible Results. It's it's kind of like what The Onion is to political news. This is uh, what it, this is a spoof journal, and it's called an, an empirical investigation of Freud's excreta theory using double-blind methodology. And it's it's written very seriously, which is what's what makes it so funny. But you know, again, it's it's that quintessential disgusting material that it's being laughed about. Yeah, and I mean it has it has broad appeal because it's it's so universal. We talked we talked earlier on about disgust being one of the key universal basic emotions that people experience. So it's something that translates pretty well across cultures, across languages, um, and I think that's why we can see it in humour. I the same way that slapstick does. It's not too far away from that. I know it has more of a visceral content than, for example, doing a funny walk or falling over, but it still has that appeal across across cultures um it does it does reduce as you say over time i think even in adulthood i think the capacity for finding things like that funny uh diminishes as people get older and wiser more more sophisticated <laughs> yeah that's right that's right mature is the is the word isn't it uh but you're right it's still got a it's still got a role you know look at the massive success of jackass for example that whole that whole franchise was based on not just disgusting things but a big proportion of it involved disgusting things and as well as the you know the the theories around humor being something unexpected something being in a situation where you wouldn't expect it to be a mismatch between sort of societal rules and what's happening you've also got the shock value of all that and the the initial attraction that people get so there's a there's an evolutionary theory around why, for example, we we stop to look at car accidents. For example, people s slow down on the on the motorway or on the freeway to to look at car accidents, and it's it's suggestive that we we essentially need to have that initial attention to to uh, stimuli like that to check whether it's safe for us. Um, so it does initially draw our attention before we may choose to avoid it. Yeah, so disgust along with fear are two of the emotions that uh, most immediately give us a, a, a knowledge that there's something potentially dangerous. And when something's dangerous, you know, you could either run as far away and as fast as you can, or you could examine and say, well, what can I learn about this, this situation or this phenomenon in order to be safe in the future? And there's also, I guess, just a fascination with being close to danger. 
uh, even if it's a, if, whether it's a small danger or a big danger. Yeah, uh, I mean the the term that's used quite a lot in the in the research is around morbid fascination. So it's it's a case that's the uh, same sort of stimuli. People, some people may be into it, may approach it, may be interested in it, whereas others think that's disgusting. Get me away from it. And there's actually an interest. There was an interesting study uh, that was using fMRI. So it's looking at the brain activation of people, um, showing them the same disgusting images, but essentially giving them false feedback and either telling them that they were disgusted, uh, that they were afraid, or that they were fascinated by it. And in giving that feedback, they actually saw different patterns of brain activation across people. Uh, and the and the images where they told people they were more fascinated by it were not appraised as negatively as those where they told them they're disgusting. So it all comes down not only to the actual emotional experience, but the cognitive context around it as well. So do you think it's possible to become a better person by knowing more about one's disgust reactions? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the biggest risk when we're talking, you know, for politics and morality is that you react and you don't examine why you react that way. So you've got an unreasoned or what we traditionally call an irrational objection to something uh, just because it feels a bit weird or it makes you feel, for example, disgusted, queasy. Um, I think it's it's a good thing to examine why. And if you can't find a reason for that, it might be that there isn't a reason for that. And you need to go and explore the situation a bit more to find out more of the evidence and arguments on either side. Mm-hmm. And I imagine there's some pretty pronounced significant, uh, pronounced differences between people in their willingness to go beyond the initial emotional reaction, whether it's disgust or fear, but particularly disgust, and actually examine why they might be disgusted and whether the situation or the object warrants that reaction. I mean, that's a pretty sophisticated and involved kind of process. I imagine that there's some people that just want to leave it at that. I, I don't need to know anything further. I'm disgusted. I'm staying, getting away from this. Where other, other people say, no, no, let's let's take a look at it. I understand that not everyone has this reaction. Not every culture has this reaction. Maybe even gender differences in how people react. And it, let's f- learn from it. But not everybody wants to learn from it. No, I agree. I agree. And there has been, i say, particularly conservative commentators who've argued that there is a a deep sort of unspoken wisdom in, for example, a disgust reaction. So it's telling you something essentially, and and that would be your initial gut reaction. Leave it alone. I don't want to look into it any further. Um, now I wouldn't take that view, so I'd argue against that view. But um, having researched where disgust comes from and what its original purposes were, I think there is value in it. It, it essentially is, it can give you a, a false. A false positive it can tell you something is bad for you when it's not it can tell you know there's laws that suggest that something's been in contact with something disgusting or it looks like something disgusting or it has properties that are sometimes associated with a disgusting object and thereby you should feel disgusted by it and avoid it and it will do that without any higher order reasoning because Suggesting that there's a false positive is better for your evolutionary survival. To think something's disgusting and bad for you is better for your survival in our ancestral evolutionary environments um, than to be a bit more liberal and say, well, it's probably okay. So what that entails then is you get a, a false alarm 
and the only way of getting past that is to actually sit there and ex examine it yourself so that would be my view but you're entirely right some people may see the the subject matter some people may feel this way and just think well this is the way i feel why why are you even bothering with that i've got lots of other stuff to worry about um so it's an interesting it's an interesting dilemma if, if your goal is to try and get people to examine their emotions in more detail so maybe the bump, the bumper sticker could be listen to your gut but don't stop there <laughs> that's right yeah i like that so just in the, this will be the very last question because we're going to be running out of time soon but i'm just curious what the reaction is of uh, friends and family when they heard that you were becoming a, an expert in disgust <laughs> tends to be pretty positive i think um it's a strange one people are people are interested i don't know if it's an extension of this morbid fascination phenomena where you've got this paradox apparent paradox where people are attracted at first providing it's safe uh before they get uh you know put off by anything but you, giving for example seminars as a as a doctoral student people are always interested in the content when you mention disgust and it obviously gives you a whole host of of resources that you can use during presentations which just make them more interesting interesting in inverted commas uh depending on what you what you show to people so there's not been a, a sort of negative reaction i think it's i think it's you know people are, are genuinely interested and i think people recognize that it's an understudied area I mean, it's only what maybe 30 years old something like that yeah 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 really interesting really interesting i feel i was thinking about before we talked today about why that is the case and and again i think that's a question that we don't really know the answer to so my my ideas are that it's to do with essentially the taboo potential taboo around it in in for example a an early 20th century society that meant that other emotions were the target of study prior to disgust but yeah you're right it's a, it's a relative to other emotions like sadness dysphoria uh fear and even anger um disgust is is more in its infancy and is, is that a is that a reflection of our maturities of society that we can actually now engage with these types of topics in a in a mature way well with your permission i think i'm going to entitle this uh talk disgust disgust i thank you very much for this discussion uh it's been really interesting uh it's, it's a topic that i've probably only become aware of as as a, as such uh just in the last few months so i really appreciate uh your very enthusiastic willingness to be part of this and uh Thank you so much, and I wish you the, the best of luck in your career and in your studies of this really interesting subject. Thanks very much. My guest today was Dr. Philip Powell, a research fellow at the University of Sheffield in London, who focuses on human emotion and its effects on our decision-making, psychological functioning, and well-being. He is a contributor to and co-editor with Nathan Considine of the Handbook of Discussed Research to be published next month. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.